Well, we are delighted that you've joined us uh, this week uh, for the Bridge Online service. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I appreciate our team so much that week after week they adjust whether we're going to be at the, at, at the park or whether we're going to be here. And on September 27th, we're making a plan to be back at the Eau Claire Children's Theater. And it takes a lot of effort to make uh, our services happen. So thank you, team. I'm really excited about um, the Bridge family to be able to reconnect with growth groups um, this fall after we've had a really long layoff from our, from our growth groups. I want to thank all those who are going to be hosting, and uh, I just want to encourage everyone to uh, seriously uh, consider getting involved in a in a in-person growth group or a virtual growth group because it's really going to be helpful to us as a church family. So today I want to start a new series. Uh, it's called Hope in Adversity, and it's going to be from First uh, Peter. So let's get started. Perhaps you already knew, but Americans have a high value for sports and fitness, maybe more for sports and less for fitness. This value is displayed in how Americans spend their money. Uh, for example, in 2018, we spent $265 billion to enhance our health and our fitness. Um, we spent $37 billion on fitness classes. Were you one of those people who signed up for a fitness class? We also spent $58 billion on sports and recreation. We spent $117 billion on sports apparel and footwear so we could look really cool. We spent $38 billion on sports equipment and supplies. And we spent $10 billion on mindful movement like yoga. We spent $8 billion on technology to help us stay fit. So how are we doing? Um, we spend the most money of all the countries in the world by far. But researchers have discovered that we rank 143rd in actually participating in physical activity. Uh, we say that we value sports and fitness, but for some reason we don't follow through. There is a disconnect in uh, what we value from what we do. I see a parallel for us in the American church. It's, it's easy to say we have a commitment to Christ. It's easy to say that this is really important to us, that we have a high value. But for some reason, we sometimes find it hard to follow through. There is a disconnect between what we value and what we actually do. It's easy to say Jesus is Lord. It's much harder to live as Jesus is Lord. Um, it's easy to say I'm a Christian. It's much harder to live like a Christian in times like we are living in today. So today we're going to begin that new series in 1 Peter, and today is just going to be kind of an introduction. Um, we're going to look at the first two verses, and we're going to look at a theological issue that people often have questions about. So 
Let's get started with the text. I'm going to be reading first uh, Peter verses chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So that's the text that we're going to be looking at uh, today. Uh, the first thing we see is that you were chosen. We were chosen, chosen by God. But before we develop this, uh, I want to let's let's start with the writer. Uh, who wrote this book? Well, it was Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, who is Peter? Now, the Bible has a lot to say about Peter. We know a lot about him. And you probably know a lot about who Peter was. Let me just remind you of a few things. He was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus handpicked, that Jesus chose to be his apprentices. Originally, Peter's name was Simon, also could be called Simeon. And Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means the rock. And then in Aramaic, and we see this in the New Testament as well, Peter is sometimes called Cephas, okay? Peter developed a reputation of speaking without always thinking through uh, the impact of his words. There are many occasions. And sometimes Peter has been called the foot-and-mouth disciple. Peter loved Jesus, and this is really evident in the New Testament. Peter loved Jesus and became a strong leader uh, among the disciples. Peter was not perfect. He failed Jesus more than once in the New Testament. And the greatest example is what happened on the night before Jesus was crucified. And Peter denied Jesus three times, denied that he was a follower of Christ on three occasions. And uh, it devastated him. Later, he was restored by Jesus and became a strong leader in the church until his death in 67 AD. So what is an apostle of Jesus Christ? Peter was an apostle. What exactly is an apostle? Let me just remind you of a few things. The original 12 disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, uh, were called apostles. They were chosen as disciples, and Jesus called them apostles. And added to that in the book of Acts is Matthias who replaced Judas. The apostles were chosen by Jesus and were delegated uh, special authority by Jesus to represent him in establishing his church. And they have this key role in the beginning of the church and getting it on a firm foundation. And most importantly, for this all to happen before most of the New Testament was even written down. One requirement to be an apostle was to have been an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. Other apostles were added by Jesus even after the resurrection, and that included, as you may know, Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul. James and Jude were biological brothers of Jesus, and they were not 
Christ followers during his lifetime. But after the resurrection, James and Jude became uh, important leaders in the early church. Um, some of the apostles, as you may know, wrote books in the New Testament, like Matthew, like John, like James, like Jude, like Peter, and Paul. Now, personally, I don't think we have any leaders in the church today like those first apostles who had this very unique role. So, Peter is the writer. Who was the audience? And we see this in verse 1. Who was Peter writing to? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter was writing to God's elect, um, meaning God's chosen ones. God had handpicked um, these people to be Christ followers. The elect refers to believers in Christ. Uh, the elect refers to the church. Uh, and by way of application, it refers even to us, to you and me, if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, God's elect were exiles. They were scattered throughout the provinces. And let's see that map so we can see these provinces. So this is the, um, this is the New Testament world. And down here is Jerusalem, and this is where the church got started. Peter, and we're going to get to this later, is riding from the city of Rome. It's way over here. Peter was once in Jerusalem when the church started, and by this time in his life, he's clear in Rome. These are provinces of the Roman Empire. Um, Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia. Today, this is modern-day Turkey. This is where Nick and Emily Thornson are returning. And by the way, they just got their passport for Eli, and um, they still don't know their date, but that's a good thing. This is also, uh, modern-day Turkey is also that location where Matt and Christina Hoffman um, are, are trusting God to lead them as, as uh, right now they're raising um, resources so that they can return. And they've already served there uh, for uh, almost a couple of years. So uh, th these people in Asia, in modern-day Turkey, back in the first century, were scattered. Uh, they were exiles. They were strangers in the world. They did not belong to this world. They belonged to another world. When they became Christ followers, uh, they joined the family of God. They became a part of God's family. They became citizens of heaven. But they were living in this world. They were, so to speak, they had a foot in each world. But this was no longer ultimately their home. They had another home. And here they are strangers, they are exiles. Now, by the time Peter wrote this book, and I think it's around 64 AD, being a Christian in the first century in the Roman Empire was very difficult. Nero was a Roman emperor, and he blamed Christians for a great fire in Rome in 64 
A.D. Persecution at this point was in the early stages. Believers were suffering, and they will be executed in the thousands in the years to come. The concept of election continues in verse 2, and, and we see the chosen, and he, he, to the elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, he's referring to the elect in the Roman provinces, and they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God chose these people to be Christ followers. God the Father had a predetermined plan to draw people to Christ. It was because of His love and by His grace that these people, these believers, were chosen. And it's also true that it's because of His love and by His grace that God has chosen you. And... Um, Next, we see the how. How how were they chosen? How were we chosen? And we also see this in verse 2. First, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It was God's foreknowledge. Now, sometimes people, when they read this word, they want to just reduce it to, well, God knew beforehand. How did, how, what is foreknowledge? It means God knew beforehand. Well, yes, God did know beforehand, but this word is more than that. It has the idea of planning for this and the idea of predetermining um, this, um, this, this election, this being chosen. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, In Him, meaning in Christ, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Does the Bible teach predestination? The answer is yes. Because Ephesians chapter 1 teaches very clearly that God predestined people to come to faith. If you are a follower of Christ... You were predestined by God. And it was in, the conf in conformity with the purpose of His will. You and I would not become Christ followers if it were not His will. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. God did this. God worked out His plan, a predetermined plan to build His church. And it's Focus is to bring glory to Him. And as we serve God on mission, we bring honor and we bring glory to God the Father. Um, in another passage, the Apostle Paul writes these words, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And so, again, Paul talks about how God chose them. It was God's predetermined plan. And the proof of it was um, the gospel message was accompanied with power 
and it had a huge impact on uh, the Thessalonians, and their lives were changed, and it, it was proof that they had been chosen by God. So God has chosen you. And even though you may not understand that or be sure of that, there is a mystery involved in this whole concept of God choosing you. Now back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, you were chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It was the work of God's Spirit. And this is how God chose you. Um, it is the work of the Holy Spirit where He sets believers apart from sin through spiritual cleansing. He sets believers apart for God's purpose. He makes believers suitable to serve God. He turns an unbeliever into a saint, forgiven by God. Again, the Apostle Paul helps picture this for us in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And he writes, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit is that work, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is a picture of what it means to be born again. It's a picture of rebirth. It's a picture of getting a fresh start, a new life cleansed uh, from sin. Now, did you notice uh, in verse 2 that all of the Trinity is involved in our salvation? The Father chose us. The, the Spirit sanctified us, set us apart for God. And next we see how Jesus sacrificed His life for us. That we are, verse 2, sprinkled with His blood. That is, Jesus' blood. Now, this, this uh, idea of sprinkled is kind of foreign to us, but it goes back to the Old Testament. Sprinkling with blood was a practice in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Covenant was inaugurated this way. We're going to see that. Um, there had to be animal sacrifices, and then blood of those animals were sprinkled on objects of worship, and even on the tabernacle, and even later on the temple. It was symbolic of cleansing. Um, the writer of Hebrews explains this in Hebrews 9, verses 21 and 22. The writer of Hebrews says, In the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. Everything. Uh, the furniture of the tabernacle, the utensils, um, the ash buckets, and the, the small shovels used at the, uh, uh, for sacrifices. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Um, so in referring to the law of Moses in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is established by the blood of goats and lambs. The New Covenant was established by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And so this idea, it's really a metaphor that our lives are sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb. It's applied to us. When we placed our faith in Christ, the blood of Christ was applied to our salvation, and we are cleansed, and we are forgiven. So I want to take a minute now, and I want to step back and address uh, an important subject as it relates to our salvation. And perhaps uh, you have been thinking about this, and this is one of your questions. It's about the classic issue of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Two important concepts in the New Testament. Um, When we think about the sovereignty of God, God is in charge. And the question we have when it comes to our salvation, did I choose God or did God choose me? Uh, It's a question of, is God really totally sovereign or do I really have a free will to pick and choose what I want? So we're going to look at a couple of passages uh, and work through this. First, uh, a passage that speaks to the sovereignty of God is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. So let's follow this through. And Paul writes to the Romans, he says, "And, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So we know from verse 28 that God has the ability to take our circumstances and work good things out of circumstances, even though our circumstances may be bad. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, there's that word again, for foreknowledge, He also predestined. Now we have the doctrine of predestination clearly again. And He foreknew and He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. What God wants to accomplish in our lives is He wants to mold us and change us so that we become more like Jesus. That's why you were chosen. That's why you were predestined. Now look look at verse 30. And those He predestined. If you are a follower of Christ, according to this, you have been predestined. He also called those, and those He predestined, He also called, and those He called, He also justified, and those He justified, He also glorified. So, we're going to walk through this. Um, God chose you, He predestined you, and He called you. What is that about? Well, it's about God working, for example, in your life, God working through your circumstances, and God working through people so that you could understand the gospel of Christ and so that you would have the opportunity to place your faith in Christ and so you could understand it. And then if you were called, you were also justified. Meaning, when you place your faith in Christ, you were declared righteous. Your sins were forgiven. You received the righteousness of Christ. You didn't deserve it. You were justified. And that's where we are right now. We've been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified, but we have not yet been glorified. But we have this promise right here. God is taking the people from the very beginning, those He predestined, all the way through until they're glorified. 
Um, just as Jesus had a glorified body after his resurrection. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and many other people, and he had a body that was different. And he even could walk through a wall, and he returned back to heaven. It was a body made for eternity. And just like that, when Jesus returns and our bodies are raised, we will then be glorified. We will have a glorified body, a body that's fit for eternity. So the focus of these passages has been on the sovereignty of God. Now let's look at the free will, the, the free will of man. And the first passage that comes to my mind is John 3.16. I don't think there's anything more clear than this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He sent Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. Why? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the good news. That's the offer to all people that anyone can place their faith in Christ, that anyone can have this gift of eternal life, that anybody can be kept from perishing and being condemned eternally. So what we have here is this, this concept of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are two opposite principles in conflict. When you think about one, how can the other be true? When you think about the other, how can the first one be true? They are opposites, but they are derived from correct reasoning. And in, in uh, theology, we call this a divine antinomy. Two opposing principles, two truths that are opposite, and they exist in tension. And this is how God has revealed himself to us. Are you okay with that? Personally, I trust God. I trust what God has revealed to us in Scripture. I don't understand it totally, but I believe it. A passage that comes to mind for me to think about is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. And Isaiah writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God doesn't think the way we do. Uh, he's not limited by our minds and our experiences and our education. Uh, verse 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. God is on a different plane. Um, his processing ability is way beyond us. And how he works, um, we don't understand at all. There is mystery here. Um, if God uh, decided to download um, his mind onto my mind, I think I would evaporate quickly. Consider Deut Deuteronomy 29, 29. And um, Moses writes, For God, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us, to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. 
Some things God hasn't told us. We have a lot of questions that one day we hope we'll get an answer. Um, questions like, why did God allow such and such to happen? Why did God allow COVID to happen? We have a lot of questions. Scripture hasn't given us the answer. Um, God hasn't told us everything. But he has revealed this to us. This is his word. This is exactly what he wanted us to have. This has the information, the knowledge, and the clues about who God is, how he operates, and how he thinks. And um, I don't have all the answers, but when it comes to his word, I trust him, and I can wait for some answers about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, and someday I may understand it, and when I get to heaven, I may not still understand it, but it's okay with me. Um, question is for you is, do you trust what God has said? Now, one of the dangers we have with um, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, we want to lean on one side or the other because it just doesn't seem like both could be true. And I think that's exactly what Scripture is saying. The last section we have in verse 2 is, is short, and it simply focuses on that you were chosen uh, for obedience. That's your purpose. You were chosen for uh, obedience. This is why you were chosen. Oh, Peter writes to the elect in verse 2, to the elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's why God chose you. So that you would be obedient. So that I would be obedient to Jesus Christ. Um, he wants us to follow Jesus uh, with our lives. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God right now. And He is directing His church. He's directing His church through His Word. He's directing His church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as He leads and guides us day by day. Um, in John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said this to His followers. He says, If you hold to My teaching... You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And look at this progression. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. There's a condition. If you hold to my teaching, if you follow my instructions, if you obey my word, if you hold on to this tightly, uh, if you're attached to my teaching, uh, then you will know more. That you will know the truth. You will know more. And the truth will set you free. And as, as you obey Christ, you'll understand more. And you'll have the ability more and more uh, to be set free from sin and disobedience. If you follow Jesus in obedience, you will grow strong as a Christ follower. Jesus also said in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, He said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And one of the things that Jesus is saying here is, those who follow Christ seriously, who, 
who seek to obey Christ put themselves in the place of blessing. They put themselves in a place to experience God's favor. Um, whether it's answered prayer, victory over sin, or God's provision, obedience puts us in a place of blessing from God. Next, we see that, um, that obedience is a proof that you were chosen. Obedience is a proof that you were chosen. John 8, 51, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word never sees death. This is a proof that you were chosen. It shows that you are a Christ follower. It shows the life of Christ displayed in your life, which will ultimately relay, uh, result in eternal life, not death. Next in John 14, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, Anyone who, leave, who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my, no, my own. They, are, they belong to the Father who, who sent me. If you say you love Jesus, follow, uh, follow him as your Lord. If you say you love Jesus, obey him fully. Because disobedience proves that we don't really care about Christ, that we don't really love him, that we're not really wanting to follow him. Lastly, we see that Jesus is this is Jesus' strategy to reach the world. Our obedience is wrapped up in Jesus' strategy to communicate the gospel throughout the world. Matthew 28 and 29 is one of the best-known passages we have in the New Testament. Jesus, after the resurrection, tells his followers these things. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so he's given his followers this job to make disciples. We are to reach out and point people to Christ. We are to share the good news. The good news is that Jesus died for our sins. For, for No matter who, no matter what race or skin color or ethnicity or gender or social status, Jesus died for all people, all people groups. And then verse 20, and Jesus said, and teaching them to obey Almost everything. No, he said, in teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And then there's this problem. If you do that, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Um, when we make disciples, God wants us to train Christ followers to follow him, to follow Christ. If we don't follow Christ ourselves, we cannot help others to follow Christ. In fact, the more that we are, as a church, are dedicated to following Christ wholeheartedly and individually, the more effective we'll be in making disciples. Do you think we need to be more effective? What's going to be the best way to, for us 
to be effective in making disciples as a church. At the bridge, we say our mission is to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. That means we are to be fully devoted followers of Christ, not partially devoted, uh, not sometimes devoted to Christ, not devoted to Christ just when I feel like it, but fully devoted to Christ. You and I were chosen by God to be obedient. So just as we come to the end of our talk today, how are you doing in your walk with God? What is going well? What causes you to be thankful? What causes you to, to give praise back to God? What causes you to stumble? What are you learning from God's Word these days? Are you able to make time for God and bring things to Him in prayer? Are you able to connect with God's people in community? Full devotion to Christ is not just saying you're committed to Christ. It's following through in obedience. Now, sometimes I put up the scale of... Um, as a Christ follower, and I put up the scale of 1 through 10, your devotion to Christ. Are you a 1 or are you a 10? Or how would you just rate yourself if 10 is full devotion to Christ? Where do you think you are in that scale? If, if you've got to be the one to make the evaluation today, where are you? And the next question is, what steps do you need to take? What decisions do you need to make? What alterations to your choices do you need to make to move up? Maybe not a 10 this week. Could you go, what would it take to go up two points or two steps in your commitment to follow Christ? I want to close um, by reading the greeting to this book in 1 Peter, and this is going to be our benediction. And Peter writes, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace be on you in abundance. God's favor on you in abundance. And then he uses the word peace, and that's the word for shalom. It means may you thrive, may you prosper in all the things that you do as you seek to honor God. God bless you all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, Peter's letter to 1 Peter. I thank you for the things that we're going to encounter and the things that we're going to learn together. God, I uh, confess that understanding um, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man is a difficult subject. I'm just grateful, God, that you have chosen us and that you have a plan for us and that you desire to work good in our lives and uh, you have equipped us and empowered us to do the things that you want us to do and that is to be on mission and to help people connect with God. God, raise our awareness and our sensitivity to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as he would challenge us to follow Jesus. 
Thank you, God, um, for all that you're doing in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in the lives of the bridge. May we shine brightly for you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.